0: I'm James Chow with the China Current. Hello from Hong Kong, where it's a beautiful winter's evening in January 2021. This is our first podcast of the year, and if you haven't listened in a while, you can find recent episodes with Mary Robinson, Chair of the Elders, Erna Solberg, Prime Minister of Norway, and Peter Piot, who co-discovered Ebola in 1976, then was infected by COVID-19 a couple of months ago. Today's conversation follows a similar arc of humanity and how each of us can participate in a future that is safe and fulfilling for everybody. My guest today is Colonel Ron Garan, an astronaut, fighter pilot and test pilot who retired from NASA having achieved a career like no other. He's travelled over 71 million miles, orbited the Earth 2,842 times, lived in space for 178 days and completed four spacewalks. April 2021 will be exactly 10 years after his landmark mission to the International Space Station. Since then, he spent time at the bottom of the ocean as part of the Aquarius Undersea Research Laboratory to develop telemedicine and telerobotic surgery for future lunar outposts. Now, one word Ron keeps coming back to is perspective, and we're so honored that he's lent his for this episode of The China Current and in a new book he's authored called Floating in Darkness A Journey of Evolution that's available now. I began by asking him about the start of his career in the United States Air Force, during which he flew in combat missions in Operation Desert Storm and the Gulf War. But how did he become an astronaut? And as such, how did he become one of the very few people to travel to another world?
1: Hey James, it's great to see you. (laughs) Um, I I went kind of the traditional route. Uh, You know, I I wanted to be an astronaut since July 20th, 1969. Uh, It was on that day where I, as a young boy, along with millions and millions of people around the world, watched those first footsteps on the moon. And that really kind of lit a flame within me to, to someday hopefully uh, travel to space and, and, and uh, be able to look back upon our planet. Um, and like I said, the traditional route, which was to um, join the military and become a, a fighter pilot and then a test pilot. And then I was selected uh, to join NASA from the ranks of uh, military test pilots.
0: Well, the achievements of the American Space Program and of Neil Armstrong in 1969 ignited the imagination for the world. Do you think space offers solutions or ideas at a time when the world is experiencing unprecedented stresses?
1: I do. And I think it comes from two sources. The first source is uh, the space program is a perfect example that nothing is impossible. You know, for thousands of years, people thought that it was impossible to travel to the moon. And obviously we proved that wrong. Uh, But the other thing is, is when we build collaboration on the foundation of awe and wonder, uh, amazing things happen. Uh, and it opens the door to, to working together, to setting aside differences, to seeing different perspectives. Uh, it really opens up the mind to, to increase possibilities. And I think the awe and wonder of space exploration has done that for, for a couple of decades now, a few decades now.
0: I love when you talk about awe and wonder because it's such a contrast to the fear And anxiety and mistrust that pervades in the world today. When you look at the rollbacks on, for example, poverty, hunger, health equity, do you think that space offers specific solutions to a time of a pandemic when our fellow human beings are really struggling?
1: Yeah, I do. I think one of the big things that our space programs do is it shows us quite clearly and quite undeniably that we are all in the same boat. Uh, we're on the same boat traveling through the universe together um, to a shared destiny, to a shared future. Uh, And I think the pandemic, one of the, you know, we're all paying a a terrible, terrible price around the world uh, for this pandemic, but we have an opportunity to get a benefit for the price that we're already paying. And one of the benefits is, you know, this, this saying that we're all in this together is obviously not a cliche. Literally every person on the planet is affected in one way or another by COVID-19 And that should be a a source of solidarity. It should be a source of resilience. Uh, It should be a source of unity uh, for us as a species, um, a species that has been kind of tasked with stewardship of the planet uh, to make sure that this is a thriving home for all.
0: Ron, you've been saying for years, and we've known each other for a number of years, you've been saying for many of those years that we're all in the same boat together. Um, Does it disappoint you that we didn't heed those warnings from people like you and others.
1: Yes and no. Uh, I mean, obviously, I, I wish that um, there wasn't so much divisiveness in, in the world. Um, but I'm I'm an optimist at heart, and I think these are the death throes of the old human epoch. I think we're about we're at an inflection point. We're at a, we're at a fork in the road, uh, and we have an opportunity to go down a different path right now. And I think. Uh, this this latest series of crises that that have occurred throughout twenty twenty uh, are kind of our wake up call to get on the right path, and I think that um, I'm optimistic that we are going to do that. That that there is an awakening um, realization of our underlying unity and and the foolishness of think of of putting up false. Uh, false walls of separation um, that, that really
0: are constructs of the mind. You then wrote a book on your retirement from NASA called Orbital's Perspective. And that jacket cover was so telling. It had you in what I guess a layman would call a cockpit, looking out at the planet from the outside in. What did it show you? And what did you learn from that insight that hardly anyone else has?
1: I describe it as a sobering contradiction. Because on the one hand, I'm looking down at the planet at this indescribably beautiful oasis, oasis in the, in the black blackness of space and the nothingness of space, uh, this teeming biosphere, the teeming with life. And it's just indescribably beautiful. It's breathtaking. Uh, it's awe-inspiring. It's, it's moving. It's emotional. But the other side of that coin, uh, the, other, the other side of the sobering contradiction, is that you have to realize as you're looking at this beautiful planet that life is not always as beautiful as, as the planet appears from space. There's so many problems on our planet. There's poverty, there's, there's hunger, there's, there's conflict. And it fills you with a sense of, of injustice that it doesn't have to be this way. And, you know, when you, when you zoom out to that perspective, all those things that we quarrel over all those things that we think are so important uh, kind of blur into insignificance uh, and what's left is our true underlying unity that is that is very apparent from that vantage point from the orbital perspective
0: I look at your book as a playbook a textbook for humanity to aspire to and your next book is no different in that sense it's called floating in darkness it provides the reader with this really unique journey that steers them through this deeper understanding of life of society and how all of this comes together before the pandemic, but also after this pandemic, what's the fundamental lesson here for us from that book?
1: The the, the fundamental lesson is unity, and it, and it comes with some really powerful uh, anecdotes, if you will, or life stories. You know, I, I had so many amazing experiences in my life that have shaped a, a very unique perspective. I flew in combat. Uh, you know, I, I ejected from an F-16 uh, less than a second before I would have been killed. Uh, you know, I lived on the bottom of the ocean. I've, I've lived in space. I've, I've done all these things. And that perspective or that, those perspective building experiences have really kind of uncovered an underlying unity that I never realized back then. Um, and, you know, we talk about tribalism and, and nationalism and all this stuff. And, and, you know, there's positive aspects of, of feeling a belonging a sense of belonging to a community or to a nation or, or whatever and i but what what's apparent from that, that vantage point is that our feeling of our tribe needs to extend to the entire planet we need to be a tribe of earthlings and um that that is a really really clear picture and what what does get uncovered uh through those perspectives is this false sense of separation, all these artificial uh, boundaries and barriers and, and, and um, you know, walls that we put up uh, between each other to keep us from collaborating with each other to, share, to, to solve our shared problems. And, you know, the very diversity of our perspectives the very diversity of our opinions is a source of strength. If we let it, if we, if we allow different perspectives into the problem solving process, we, we come up with much better solutions. And that's what this is all about. This is all about you know, melting down or breaking down those barriers and exposing the, the true underlying inherent unity that exists within our planet and within our, with our species.
0: We associate you, of course, with space, but your beginnings were in New York where you were born and grew up at that time. Is home a physical location to you, to someone who's traveled all over and out of the world as well?
1: Yeah, I I think our definition of that word home, has profound implications for how we problem solve, how we treat each other, how we treat our planet. And maybe to tell you a a quick story to illustrate that is when my six month mission was over in 2011, my two Russian crewmates and I got into our Soyuz spacecraft. We undocked from the space station uh, and we had this fiery violent ride through the atmosphere at five miles a second. The parachutes opened, they threw us all over the place. Eventually we, we smashed into the ground and we hit so hard that we bounced and we rolled and we flipped over. And now my window was pointed down at the ground. And out of my window, I saw a rock, a flower, and a blade of grass. And I thought to myself, I'm home. And it was a really, really powerful feeling. But then what came right behind that feeling of being home was the realization that I was in Kazakhstan. And so to me at that moment, my home wasn't just Houston, Texas, where at the time I lived with my family, my family was waiting for me to return, home was earth. And like I said, that that definition what we define as as home you know something to protect something to defend something to take care of something to nurture that definition of that word home has has powerful implications and what i discovered uh, was that broadening my definition of home to encompass the entire planet did not come with a requirement to forget where I came from, my national, cultural, religious, ethnic, or any other identity. It just meant simply mean, meant seeing those things in the context of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is the unity that we all share as as earthlings, and not just amongst us humans, but amongst all the living creatures on the planet.
0: Ron, home to you at that time, though, was Yonkers in New York, just north of the city we look at you as the fighter pilot as the former astronaut as someone who's continuing to push boundaries now but what was life like as a child and what were the experiences the formative experiences that you carry forth to this day
1: yeah that's a, that's an interesting qu- question james because i think at that time my the, the edge of my universe was the hudson river <laughs> so i didn't think that it, you know anything existed you know beyond new york city um i mean obviously i knew that there was a whole world out there but it was kind of irrelevant <laughs> and um i i can see how folks you know can can get really comfortable in their own little slice of the world uh, but what the joining the military and then obviously going to nasa afforded me was the opportunity to travel all around the world and meet people and, and experience different cultures and and to realize the richness of life, uh, human life on, on Earth. And um, so thinking back on, on those days, I, I, th- I think about how narrow that perspective was. It was an accurate perspective, it w- but it was just a very narrow perspective. Uh, and you know that's why I, I wrote the, the name of my first book was called The Orbital Perspective because perspective is such a powerful tool uh, to to shape real change and or, or to prevent real change, if if we do not allow all you know um, others perspectives into the problem solving process. And so, um, I, looking back on that on that arc, if you will, on, on that life arc. Uh, it, it was it was an arc, a journey of ever-expanding perspective, uh, which eventually led to the perspective of our planet from space. And I'm, I'm very thankful that uh, that's the path that, that I went down.
0: As a child, you say that the edge of your universe was the Hudson River. And that brings me back to memory from your Instagram, where you posted, I think over the holidays, this video of you and your crewmates uh, trying to catch M's in gravity oh, yeah. with, with your mouth over there i mean i mean was there any comprehension by your wider family be they your parents your siblings your cousins that your life had transformed so drastically and for such important reasons as well
1: yeah i, I don't think i realized how much my life transformed i i kind of describe it as a an epiphany in slow motion um, although my last flight was in 2011, so almost 10 years ago now, uh, I'm still processing that experience. I'm still processing what it meant and, and um, what, it mean, what it means in the bigger picture, right? I mean, it's, it's not so hard to, to figure out what it means, you know, on a day-to-day basis type of thing. But what does it mean? You know, you know, there's some existential questions <laughs> that arise from being out in the vacuum of space and being out on a spacewalk and, and looking back at our indescribably beautiful planet. It, uh, it really makes you question, um, what's it all about? <laughs> and that's why I wrote this, the, the new book, Floating in Darkness, because it is a book that tries to answer the question, what's it all about?
0: You know, Ron, when we look at 2011, which was your big mission to the International Space Station, at that time, China had a relative infancy lunar space program, but in the last couple of weeks has just returned to Earth, carrying the first samples from the lunar surface in decades. I think the previous one was in the 1970s, carried out by the Soviet mission. Um, was that surprising to you? And Where does that fit in the global landscape?
1: What's surprising is that we don't have many nations on the moon. What's surprising is that we don't have a, already have a permanent human presence on the moon and, a, and have established a uh, transportation infrastructure between Earth and our closest neighbor. Uh, I think that's something that we as a species need, need to be doing a lot faster than we're doing for the benefit of all of
0: humanity. What's going to come out of that? Because people look at this and say perhaps the space program isn't a priority at a time when the challenges that we face are more serious, uh, more exacerbated than before. I know that you would argue counter to that. And what would that argument be?
1: Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of valid arguments against that. Uh, um, a lot of them are technical. A lot, there's a lot of benefits um, to the Earth from space exploration. You know, We've talked for, for decades about spin-off technology, solar energy, electronics, you know, communications, the list goes on and on. But there's research being conducted uh, on on board the International Space Station and other other facilities that uh, are creating science and uh, and getting results from experiments that simply can't be duplicated anywhere on Earth. And it's leading to a fundamental increase, exponential increase in our understanding of of our place uh, on the planet and and in the universe. Also with the moon, you know, our our. Earth's our planet's closest neighbor, there's resources on the moon, there's energy on the moon, there's many, many benefits uh, to life on Earth uh, through our, our uh, con- establishing a continuous human presence on the moon. But I think the most important thing is the shiny example of international collaboration. You know, the fact that 15 nations built the International Space Station, many of these nations weren't always the best of friends uh, somewhere on opposite sides of the Cold War, opposite sides of the space race. But somehow they found a way to set set aside their differences and do this amazing thing in space. And we need for for all of humanity to to create an infrastructure, a transportation infrastructure in space to the moon uh, as an international community. before using that as an example of international collaboration that other um other efforts would follow and you know one of the things that really came out of the international space station program is what we tend to do is we tend to use the low-hanging fruit those things that we have in common and we use it as kind of a stick to force the things that we disagree about right to to force uh points of contention and that never never works. But what we did in the, in the International Space Station program is the exact opposite. We found something that we agreed on, which was space exploration. We decided to work on that together. Uh, and through the course of that partnership, friendships developed, a certain level of trust developed, and that became a platform that we can use if we choose to now, from this foundation of trust and friendship, start to address the things that we, we don't agree on. And that, that I think, is the, the way for to progress forward uh, in, in a very effective manner versus what we, we tend
0: to do. I mean, what's surprising if we look back on that time was, as you said, seeing countries that were sworn enemies, I think, working together in space. That hasn't happened yet with the sole space superpower, which is the United States and a country like China. Um, do you think that necessarily there is value to that? We've seen them work together, for example, in Ebola against the financial crisis around 2008, 2009. But would a collaboration in the same spirit necessarily benefit humanity? Do you see it happening?
1: I have, I have no doubt in my mind that that would benefit humanity. I think it's, it's what we need to do for a number of reasons. From a technical point of view, having a different engineering philosophy having a different engineering perspective leads to better technical solutions and and the International Space Station program has proved that over and over again so bringing in uh, you know the, the Chinese perspective into the engineering technical solution is going to be a, a great benefit it's going to build redundancy it's going to build re- resiliency uh, into into it but also going back to what we said before you know sharing in the on wonder of space exploration, naturally unifies people. And it naturally allows them to start creating real relationships, real working relationships, real trust, uh, for, and that can be used as a foundation to, to address the things that we disagree on. You know, when, when there was talk about bringing the Russians into the International Space Station program, there were many, many people who objected to that, saying, we can't work with the Russians until they fix you know X, Y, and Z. Luckily, those voices didn't win out. Um, But those same voices are saying that, at least in the U.S., those same voices are are saying that as a reason why we shouldn't work with China, we disagree with X, Y, and Z. Uh, Again, a proven path to success, a proven path to progress is to find that low-hanging fruit, find the things that we agree on, and and start to collaborate uh,
0: on those things and work together. Ron, may I finish by bringing you back to 1969, the year and the achievement by Neil Armstrong and the Americans that changed your view of the world. Um, how do you look at that and say, for example, now in 2021, that's how we set aside our differences. That's how we establish common points for collaboration.
1: Well, I, I think it goes back to you know proving that nothing is impossible, that, that you know, it's not impossible to land on the moon, and it's not impossible to to lift every person on the planet out of poverty, and to do that in a way that doesn't destroy the planet. These are possibilities. It, we have proven the the success of human ingenuity when we decide to to collaborate. Um, and with with the Apollo program, that was mostly a, a collaboration within the U.S. Uh, imagine what we can do by collaborating with with the entire world, and and the th- and the things that we can accomplish. So I think. Uh, again, that's it's a shining example of what can be accomplished when we,
0: when we work together. Ron, we take it for granted that throughout the different facets of your career, you've gone and achieved X, Y, and Z. But in all of those capacities, you put your life on the line for humanity. We thank you for that, for everything that you've done.
1: Well, th- and thank you, James, for all that you're doing, all the messages that you're getting out into the world, uh, all the stories that need to be told. Uh, I, I think you're, you're making a, a big difference in the world as well.
0: Ron Garand's new book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, is available now. We thank him for joining us, and we thank you for listening.